Hey everyone, and welcome back to Creative Consumption. I'm Daniel Schwartzberg, host of the show. Uh, for those of you returning to the show, thank you so much for coming back. And for those of you who are listening for the first time, thanks for checking us out. We really appreciate it. It's been a little while since our last episode, so I appreciate you guys coming to check it back out. If you are returning, things just got a little crazy in the fall, and so I had to take a bit of a break. But I actually did record a couple of episodes back in the fall that I didn't have the chance to post. So the first two interviews that we'll be dropping in the feed, including today's, were actually recorded back in the early to mid-fall of 2020. So when the pandemic and the shutdowns and all of those sorts of things were still very much in effect. So if you hear any references to the pandemic or to you know, not knowing when things will start to open up or change or improve, that sort of information is not current. And I'm extremely glad and grateful to see how much things have changed, uh, continue to change and continue to improve and how things have slowly but surely been getting better since last October when I spoke to today's guest up until today. And since I want to make sure we get right to that interview as soon as possible, I will jump right into introducing today's guest, who is Gavin Creel. So Gavin Creel is, uh, he's first and foremost, a a caring and a multi-talented individual. He also happens to have won both Tony and Olivier Awards and performed uh, across the world in numerous Broadway shows and concerts, including Hello Dolly, that was the Tony, uh, the West End production of The Book of Mormon, the Olivier, the 2016 revival of She Loves Me, the 2009 revival of Hair, and many, many, many more. Gavin has also composed and produced several albums and personal musical works, and you can hear his melodious tones in a variety of live and animated films and TV. Uh, Most recently, you might have seen Gavin's performance in the MCC Theater's Miscast Gala. He and Aaron Tveit, they reunited after a five-year hiatus for a truly special duet, and I don't don't want to spoil the surprise, so go and take a listen when you have a chance. There's a link in the show notes. Gavin has been and continues to be a a big inspiration for me personally, as I know he is for so, so many people. So this interview really meant a lot to me. We touched on a bunch of topics from his early days of listening to top radio hits while sweeping his porch, his thoughts on how he believes he can best contribute to the world personally and as an artist, to how he keeps himself grounded and doing as much as he can to to learn more and to help others through his work and his art. So yeah, without further ado, here's Gavin Creel. Gavin, thank you so much for coming on. Glad to be here. So the first thing I usually, I love to start with because I love the baseline it gives, it gives the conversation, which is when you meet somebody for the first time, what title or titles of the many things that you do, which one do you lead with? Well, um, that's funny because I don't necessarily, <laughs> I don't know that I lead with a title. I wonder, I wonder if maybe for me, it's what title do the people that I'm meeting uh, think of me as maybe, you know, in the sense that I don't see myself as having any titles. I would say when people ask, what do you do? I, the easiest answer is I'm an actor. Um, and I know that that's a broad term. And I have to say, I remember when I first graduated the University of Michigan School of Music, Theater and Dance, go blue. I had a real, yeah, go blue, baby. I had a real, um, you can hear New York City in the background. This, of course, there's a siren going by right now. It's good. It's good. It's ambiance. When I first moved to the city, I remember being self-conscious about 
going to the doctor's office and there would be like occupation and then a big blank line next to it. And I would just feel embarrassed to write the word actor. Do you feel me on that? Yeah. Yeah. It's a weird, you're like, am I really, and, and am I making money? Am I, am I not the thing I say that I am until somebody's paid me for it? Is money really the thing that makes me have value or, or, or credibility in something? And I am so far from those days of feeling weirdly ashamed or embarrassed of calling myself an actor, but I, it's good for me to remember that right now in this moment, that it is, a, it is something to say, what's the title you lead with? It's a great question. I think probably I would just say, as far as I don't tell people a title, I'm, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a professor, but I, I would say I'm an actor, singer, songwriter. That's kind of how I identify in the world. Not in any particular order, but it's just easier for people to say and to understand when I say it that way. When do you think you got past that discomfort from the early stages? It's a good question. This is, this is, there's a great conversation in here about confidence. I think a lot about how do we get confidence. Some of it's genetic and innate. Like Some of it is nature-nurture, like just the way we are wired just to be confident. Some of us have been, I think a lot of it, more of it is nurture and what our parents looked us in the eye and said, you're beautiful, you're worthy, and you just start to believe it. And the opposite is obviously true where people have very little self-confidence because people are just downright evil or cruel to them or, or even subtly so. But I think a lot about, I think a lot of my confidence comes from risk and reward. I took a risk at something and someone, even something as simple as said, that was really good. You did that well. And then boom, one little, one little like, I don't know, burst of like a little burst of confidence. And, the, and then it builds. And then I try it again. And somebody goes, that was still good. And oh, and I think for me, it must come to being able to be confident. Repetition, I think probably being hired, taking risk, auditioning, being hired and getting jobs and then having somebody else say you're an actor. And I think probably, obviously, it's our profession. And it's like being paid to do it, getting my equity card. Uh, when I was in college, I got my equity card the summer after my junior year in the ensembles at the Pittsburgh Pacific Light Opera, and it was a big job for people to get. And the first year I went, my sophomore year, I didn't get in. I think I might have gotten called back, but I didn't get a job. And I thought, oh, crap, okay. So there was a risk and no reward. And, and then you start to doubt because the confidence isn't there. And you're thinking, I was thinking, oh, I have. And I have auditioned for Cedar Point Amusement Park both my freshman and sophomore years. Did not get in either time. And I was like, geez. I was like, well, crap. I just didn't have, I was not Cedar Point material. I think that's what they said. And I was like, crap. And then the same year, I think I auditioned again. And then I ended up getting Pittsburgh. And I thought, well, I guess I'm Pittsburgh material. But then there's that from the, from the, from the logistics standpoint. And then it's just being hired. I mean, logistical, logistically, I get hired and I, they pay me. And I, mm -hmm. but the other thing is, I think I find that confidence and that lack of self consciousness of calling myself an actor when in the eyes of other actors they look at me and i see in their eyes oh yeah he's an actor as a songwriter i remember my my voice teacher from college melody racine um the first time i told her i wrote a song she was like okay and then shortly after that i played her a couple songs she said, huh that's pretty good and then shortly after that she talked to someone else about my songs and that gave me confidence. She said, you should hear Gavin's songs. They're very good. And then it became this like thing that was outside of both of us. 
and I always had this, um, <laughs> I had this saying that I haven't used in a while called the golden ball. Like there's like this golden ball inside all of us and it lives sort of in our heart space and it takes real courage to reach inside and hold it out and say, this is me right here in my hand. And I'm holding my, my golden ball in, in my heart space. And I'm saying to everybody, this is me. This is who I am. And it's scary because I've taken it out of my chest, the protection of my body. And I've decided to tell the world I'm pulling it out and I'm opening my hand and I'm saying, this is me here, right here. And it's so easy for people to go, or ha ha ha, or whatever. And then I just take it and I crush it, or I shove it back in and never let it out again. But when I hold it out, arm stretched, elbow straight, you know, and I and I open my hand fully, and there's the golden ball. And people go, oh, and they come warm their hands on it, and they want more. Then that ball grows, and then it encompasses me and my my spirit and my body, and then it expands to the people around me who are like melody like saying oh my god that song was good you should hear Gavin's song and that person wants to hear the source of my gold and and then I play it for a small audience and they and it's nerve-wracking again and I'm okay I wrote these new songs or, or coming when I met you I was terrified that when I because I had never before I met you Daniel doing the process project in 2016 which for those of you listening was an experiment and a total experiment with a bunch of original material that I had that I wanted to see if we could live in a space of process. And I remember the terror I had because never before had I seen a piece of paper with music and lyrics, Gavin Creel on before. Wow. Cause my, my friend, Je Justin Mendoza, our music director yeah. and my friend, Madeline Smith and my copyist and, and, and transcriber, they were the people, Justin and I, figured out the chords and we sent recordings to Matt and to Madeline and then she made this music, but I was so scared to take my golden ball out and hand it to you, Daniel Schwartzberg and say here. And I, I remember the react. I was so, I had to come home after the first day where I was like, okay, I'm giving these students these songs. And I was terrified that you would all think they were terrible. And I would hand you the song and, and all that I would get from you was like, okay, Okay, very few of you were like, oh my God, this is so good. I love this song. It was very matter of fact. And I thought, they hate this. And I was like, oh God, this is terrible. And what I realized, I think what I came to realize was you had no reason to not believe that I was a songwriter because A, all of the evidence was there. There was a piece of paper and it said music and lyrics. You didn't realize that that was created like five days before I showed up. Up to that point, it was just an idea in my chest, in my head. And then I you know, outstretched, pulled it out of myself. I put it on paper and outstretched my arm and said, here it is. And you took it as fact. I got confidence from that moment. That is now the most invaluable thing that I have discovered. That if I play you a new song, and generally, who's going to be a bad audience when I buy? Can I play you one of my new songs? Generally, even if they don't like it, they go, it's great. There are a few people along the way have been like tepid and... I know that that is not a reaction that's helpful to anybody who's created anything. It's There is always good to come from any part of creation, regardless if it's the quote-unquote silly poem that I just wrote this afternoon that is just quote-unquote terrible. I wrote it. I created it. It's there. There is some value, even if it's not the greatest thing that was ever made. And as an audience, I know now to listen with that heart and that mind when someone has said can I read something to you? I inevitably know my reaction is going to be, even if I'm like, yeah, there's probably ways this could be better. I'm still going to be like, 
there is always something good to find in something that was genuinely and honestly created. Having created things, I am better for having done that. And, and then not just having created them, but created them and then shared them multiple times in front of people, in front of audiences, in front of classes, students. The thing that no student really realizes until they teach is that the teacher stands in front of them a student. Like there is no great tome that we all read as teachers and then go, aha, now I know. And now I, I know everything because when we're students, we imbue the teacher with this great knowledge. We just assume, most of us do. There are some people who come in with their arms folded and, and in, as far as the arts are concerned, the people with their arms folded are not welcome at my table. It's just not. But most of us come in, our arms open saying, lead me, tell me, teach me. And the teacher, know, a good teacher knows this responsibility and handles it with care and hopefully doesn't inflate their own ego in the same time. But also, I like to keep a balance of confidence and authority when it's needed, but also vulnerability of like, I don't know. I don't have the answer. Let's try to figure it out together. It's the kind of teacher I try to continue to be. But it's really, to get to your first question, it's really wonderful to think, where does that confidence come from? Or where does that, this is my title come from? And I guess it's partly from the outside world validating me and giving me affirmation financially. Part of it's from the eyes of the people I'm on stage with. And then the most important part of it is when I can get to it myself and I can go, it doesn't matter if no one this project I'm working on right now in the center of this devastatingly painful time of the pandemic that I find soul-crushingly sad and lonely and painful. And also, yes, I am trying to be resilient and find the gifts within it because there are gifts within it. But I do not want this to be life forever. I do not want to adapt this world into like a hybrid of what I have no desire to live in a world that is always present in a in a disease. I just don't. If it becomes that and we have to, of course, I'll figure it out. But I've been a little more stick in the mud about the whole thing. Like I don't want to, I don't want to sing on the stupid computer. I'm a live performer. I'm not a cinematographer. I'm not a cameraman. I don't like being in front of the camera all that much. I don't want to do the thing that is like, I want you to sit on my couch next to me with nobody else and play this song that I wrote and share that soul to soul, body to body, room in a room together. I mean, even for another year, it would be a lot. Um, so I'm really, I hope that, like you said, that we don't have to be living with this. No, I mean, we will. We're not, we're going to try to stay alive. First of all, just the basics of just staying, breathing and heart beating. And then, then it's up to us. The great gift for me has been, it has, I was just talking to somebody the other day, it has emptied my bowl. It has poured everything that I am and I know. It has taken from me in ways that I didn't realize. It has poured my identity as an actor, what my title is, my, my that is gone. It has taken the people who approve of me with their applause, they're gone. It has taken salary away, the ability to pay bills. I have to, you know, you know, obviously I'm very lucky and I've been very fortunate. But, you know, it's more money, more problems in a lot of ways. You have to figure out sometimes. And uh, I think there is something to be said for getting back to screw the money, screw the things you have, screw all that. What are you when all that stuff is poured out and all of my unbelievable privilege and, and opportunity, it's all gone. And I've discovered 
I'm a little bit of a petulant child at the source of it. And I like pounding my fist on the table. And it's been, I've been dealing with like facing how kind of gross I am in a lot of ways. I am not as nice as I thought I was. I was, I was doing nice. I was trying to say the right thing so that people would like me or that, or that I can make other people feel better so that I feel better. It's like, it's dumped everything out for me. So it's like, what are you now going to put back into the bowl? Cause you are the bowl. It's like, okay, I'm just talking in metaphors. I'll go, go here, but it's what, what has value and what am I going to put back in? And if it doesn't serve me and doesn't make me peaceful and in a place of joy, it does not go back in the bowl. And it's hard. I, I put things back in and I'm like, ah, oh, why did I put that back in? I can take it out. I couldn't do that before COVID. I couldn't. I felt too much responsibility for this character that I've been playing for 20 years in the industry. This person that everybody thinks that I am. I've, I felt I felt a, a responsibility within the industry. Oh, you're the guy who does these kinds of roles, or you're the guy who sings like this, or that's why I, you know, I question our our need to post and tell and tweet and dial oh, not dialogue monologue about our lives and show our opinions. I just think, oh, mystery, man! Like, stay quiet, stay stay brave, and stay quiet. And then once you have something. Bring it out. I feel like the pandemic is forcing everybody to – there's going to be a wellspring of art after this, don't you think? Of Absolutely. people, Especially live art because there isn't – unless you're going to put it online, there isn't really anywhere people can show their new stuff. And it's not – I'm not writing. The piece I'm writing, it's not meant to be on a film yet. Maybe maybe I'll adapt it. But it's gonna, first, it's going to be in a theater with people and hopefully sooner rather than later. But yeah, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I – absolutely want to get back to what this present moment means for how we how we do create and how we kind of deal with what we're left with when so much is taken away. Um, but I also want to hop back and I want to, I'd love to ask you growing up, like early on, what were the things that you were taking in, that you were watching, you were reading, whatever it was mm. that really influenced you to go down the path that brought you to, hi, I'm an actor, singer, songwriter, that's what I do. Like, what were the things that were influencing you? Mm, the two biggest things were top top forty pop radio okay. and Thursday night television. Television. I was really excited by. Um, it seems horrible to say this, but it is my past. Like the Cosby Show. I loved the Cosby Show. I loved seeing that family on TV every week. I loved Cheers. I loved a different world and. And uh, I was into going to the to the library and checking out VHS tapes and watching like the Pink Panther and oh, nice. um, old old movies that I was told or I was supposed to see. And I but I love television. I love seeing what was on TV. And I wasn't allowed to watch it a lot as a kid. So I think that increased my want and need to watch it. You know. Yeah. I also really loved listening to the Top Forty radio. My my need for being up on what was the number one song of the week was in, like a very, it was very important to me to know. And it was always on Sundays that Casey Kasem or Shadow Stevens or Rick Dees, maybe is that one of the names of the guy? It was mainly Casey Kasem in the top 40. It's what, what a Ryan, Ryan Seacrest does now, I think. He would count out the top 10 and I would race home after church because I wanted to make sure I didn't miss, you know, so I would just be out sweeping the porch really slowly doing my chores on Sunday and, and always had the like the I remember very specifically sweeping the front porch and waiting for number one and 
you know, I, I, I listened to Whitney Houston and Billy Joel and George Michael and Harry Connick Jr. and Janet Jackson and Michael Jackson. And I was just really into pop music. And then I found musical theater. My parents had classic radios like Oklahoma and Camelot and South Pacific and stuff, the Golden Age stuff. But I didn't really have as much interest in that. The first three CDs that I checked out from the library when I was a kid were The Revival of Guys and Dolls from, with starring Nathan Lane and Faith Prince. The original company of Assassins, starring Victor Garber, I believe, off-Broadway. And then the original company of Hair. And it's hilarious to me all these years later that I was in the revival in 2009. So, um, yeah, that was, that, was kind of, that was kind of the source material. I was, I was in choirs. I was in church choir and school choir. And I took piano lessons and trumpet and all that. So I was sort of down the path of music. And I was in the bands and the orchestras with trumpet playing and play piano and stuff. But, but it was mainly... As far as like being hooked into the world at large, it was listening to that radio and getting into going down to Finders Records downtown and waiting for when Whitney Houston's newest album was going to be released. And I would go down and buy it on the first day. It was, it was you know, a, a compulsion. <laughs> and then when did you want to perform as well? Because it sounds like music was such a big part of your life. Just like you sounds like you were like just ingesting it and like taking it all in. Then when did the performing aspect come into it? Uh, good question. I, I was in school. Um the biggest influence I think that was really grabbed me was fifth and sixth grade choir glee club and ensemble. And my teacher, Nancy Glick, who sadly passed away this year, she was the sixth grade teacher. She taught sixth grade and I, she was my sixth grade teacher, but mm -hmm. she had the fifth and sixth graders audition at the beginning of every school year. And there was glee club, which was everybody, anybody who wanted to be in it could be in it. Then there was choir, which was highs, middles and lows. And she would teach three part harmony to, nine and 10 and 11 year olds. Awesome. It was amazing. And then there was the ensemble, which was 12, um, four, four and four highs, middles and lows. And we, we wore little, um, uh, red velvet vests when we were going, doing holiday shows around town. And, um, we would sing at churches and, you know, fellowship halls and things like that once in a while. But it was, that was the birth of, I think I like people looking at me. I like, uh, singing in harmony and, and being out there. And I love the audience and I love the electricity of that. And then I did my first play, my freshman year of high school, which was a silly play that the, the CA, the communicative arts teacher directed. And then I did my first musical my sophomore year of high school. And then I did the musical each year. And, and then I decided to audition for Michigan um, at the encouragement of my uh, a guy who was a class above me in my hometown who ended up going to Michigan. And I was determined not to go there because I didn't want to follow him like a puppy. And he was like, let that ego go. Trust me. The school is amazing. You want to be here. And I went, okay, but I'm going to Carnegie Mellon. And I auditioned for both and I got into both. And that, I, it was a tough decision, but I was like, I followed my gut and I was convinced the whole first term that I made the wrong decision. And then collage concert was the beginning of second term and I was in it and I saw it and I was just like, this is the greatest place ever. So I never looked back after that. That's really cool. I love what I do and I'm so grateful for what I do and I hope to get to continue to do it. But I also love, especially in the midst of this, I see how important it is to, for me, to have things other than performing that I do because when it's taken away from me, I'm so grateful for my writing. I'm grateful for poetry. I'm grateful for teaching. I'm teaching a class to the graduating class of 2020 because they're all supposed to come to New York and I'm I thought you know what I'm going to offer a little space and we meet every Friday for a couple hours and we're we're doing poetry this week so everybody's writing poems and I really am having a good time doing that and you know I'm grateful for the things that I do in 
that that keep me creatively fulfilled that are uh, that aren't performing because right now it's not around. Well, so on the flip side, then, because you have so much that it sounds like with your teaching, with with the projects that you have going on, and your the things that you love to do to create where you make something. When or how do you give yourself the space to just relax and <laughs> I say like turn your brain off, right? But I know that it's for some people it's the brain never turns off, but when you let go of the creative need, the creative impulse, and you just kind of sit down and enjoy something that someone else created. Um, that takes practice. In the beginning, I found it hard, and it's the best advice I was ever given. Other people's successes are not your failures. So when you go and see somebody else do something amazing, it's inevitable. I'm like, will I ever be, get to be a part of something that great? Will I ever be that great? It always happens to me, even to this day. And then I hear my voice say, let them be great. They can be great. They can inspire you to want to aspire to greatness, to be a part of something like that. So I, I'm really... I probably critical. People call me critical. There's not a lot, having been in the business for as long as I have now, there's not a lot that surprises me or, or, or excites me in the way because I've seen all the smoke and mirrors and the strings and things. That doesn't mean that I'm not begging for somebody to blow my hair back. But I'm more interested in other things um, than just straight up going to see a musical. That said, I have a really good time. And I kind of, because I'm almost too critical, I'm able to suspend and surrender all of it and just go, lower all your expectations. It doesn't have to be the greatest thing you've ever seen. And I end up leaving really amused and enjoy it. I enjoy myself. But uh, to turn my brain off, the first thing that came to mind was I've been meditating every day since the first of the year. Uh, I was going going through some, some hard stuff and I knew that I needed to get back to meditation. And I've my brain moves very quickly, as anybody who's listening to this probably can attest. But I, it's not quick in that I'm proud of it. It's, it, it, it's wastefully quick. It has a hard time. I have a hard time sitting still. And I know that I am not a victim of my brain. I am in charge of my focus. And I am. there may be some medication that I could or should be on. But I've always sort of shied away from it because I'm, I'm scared that it'll somehow take my creative edge away or something. But... My sister has diagnosed me. She's a psychologist. She said, oh, I would, I would do the test for you, and, but you'd probably be disappointed with the results <laughs> <laughs> about my, att- my attention issues and stuff. And I just thought, you know, I think I could use uh, some practice in quieting my mind. And so I stepped into meditation. I started with Headspace, the app, and I did a little bit of reading. I'm very understudied, but I, the, the thing I have learned most is that it's the practice of doing it every single day is the value. The most valuable thing of meditation is the practice of it. And I have really found it to be very helpful for me during this time. I'm, I'm frankly impressed that I've stuck with it as long as I have. Now it's like a, I'm afraid to not do it yeah. to start my day. So that that is very helpful for me to be able to turn off. Um, COVID is like the greatest microscope of like, what is the thing? Who are you? What is it? And for me, if there's three things I have to do every day, it's something for my mind, which is meditation. I have to do my push-ups and pull-ups. I've been doing push-ups every day since this began, just so I move my body in some way. Sometimes I take a walk. Sometimes I do more than that. I do you know, more calisthenics and stuff. But as long as I'm doing something physical and then something um, creative. And I've been writing in a journal every day wow. um, in a way that I haven't been. I have not done this consistently. This consistently, 
And I think I just looked at my word count since March and I'm up to like 150,000 words or something. And I'm, I'm just like, just keep writing. I don't, I don't reread most of what I write. Rarely. I'd say 99% of the time I don't reread anything. It's just to keep that mind open. Do you think since starting that meditation earlier in the year, have you noticed the voice slowing down or is it more that you can just accept how fast the voice is and that's, mm. that's just easier for you? Both. Very astute observation. That's so good. Do you meditate as well? I do a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, cause that, that sounds like a meditator talking because, because if you, I don't know if you found this Daniel, but in the meditation, I, everything else in our lives, like working out your body, right? As long as you have good form and you stay, you stay away from injury, it's told to you that you can add more weight and then you can add more cows and you add more this and add more that. And, and then it, there's a forward trajectory. There's, it's told to us that if you work hard and you get, then you get opportunity. It's this ascension with meditation. It's not that it like, like it, it would, it would, with that argument, you would think one would think, no, I thought that I'm going to be a really good meditator. <laughs> I'm going to get really good at this. And that is the greatest thing that I have shed because that mentality is sort of like the cage that my mind and my heart was in for years of like trying to do it right, trying to be better, trying to be the best. Fine. Okay, Gavin, you may, that, 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 you may chase that tail for the rest of your life. I don't think I will. I think I'm getting closer to releasing it, but it's like, Every day, it's a practice of doing it every day. And in that, some days I am like outside of my body. I'm going to be honest, there are not many. And then most days, maybe all days, I am working to bring my mind back to my breath. It's not, you know, to have zero thought is what I guess the gurus and the yogis can get to. I ain't no guru. I ain't no yogi. Oh, count me into that group. Yeah. 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 Some, some days it is terrifyingly claustrophobically noisy those are rarer now in the beginning they were often but those days come and and i hate those days there are some days where i break the the position and i have to put my head in my hands and just go stay don't open your eyes just stay here those those are a handful in the last eight months but what's more consistent for me in the meditation is um many thoughts and, an, and, and a, a permission to allow those thoughts and then a gentleness with myself of just going, it's okay. Just come back if you can. Just try to see if you can do a body scan. Try this. You know, Some days it's effortless and then most days there is effort involved. But I just remind myself the pride I get when I open my eyes so that I did it. If I do nothing else in that, if I don't get to the push-ups, I don't get to the pull-ups, I don't get to writing, I'm doing those things. But the pride I get of centering myself with the meditation is so great. I'm so I'm so grateful for it. That's awesome. Like you said, I I think that probably the biggest realization I've had, not that you didn't say this, but I I feel this way and kind of I was thinking this while you were talking is to slow down to take the time to realize how busy my brain is and it is terrifying because when I actually take the time to breathe, it's not that everything turns off and like all of a sudden it's that it's that I just have to, I have to notice and sit with how crazy my brain is sometimes yes. and I have to sit with it and be okay with sitting with it. And that's really tough. That's really difficult because like you said, I'm very much somebody who has been conditioned to believe 
this will get better, it will get easier. And by better, I mean like I will improve because the standard to which I aspire is, I don't know, emotionless, like nothingness, I guess, maybe. Like, is that what it's supposed to be? But I mean, call me when you find it and tell me how you got there. Exactly, right? And I think it's been really, in a lot of ways, at least with the the apps and the things that I've been learning about, it's the really relieving and very, like, the alleviating of the burden is just knowing that emotional awareness is almost, or for me, just as beneficial as trying to have emotional control. Because emotional control is... It's a loser's game for me. And it, it's, it really, that leads me to become even more, I think that compounds the things that I don't want to be feeling is trying to control them. Not only is it allowing yourself to sit with it, le- like letting yourself sit with it. I, may, I might even say that's the most important part of what you said, but it's also being gentle with yourself for even having a busy mind. For me, it's been working to find a way to release the judgment and the punishment of me not being able to be X, Y, or Z. And in this case, to be Zen, to be Pema Chodron, to be a yogi master, or to, to be able to get to a level of enlightenment, to be the Buddha. For me, it's just going, it's okay that today you had to put your head in your hands. You were there, you went, the practice of it. And I think the most important part besides being okay and being gentle and non-judgmental of yourself, is what you said, is, is also even more okay to sit in sadness. That is not something my Midwestern plucky brain has been doing for 20 years. And I, 40, oh my kidding, 20 years, 44 years, I have been working towards being a person who looks on the bright side and is told optimism is the way and and has been told you've got it you can't stay in, you can't stay mad or sad for too long i do agree with that wallowing is not our friend but also what's equally not our friend is for somebody to blow right past somebody who's like i'm having a hard time oh i'm sorry to hear that but it's beautiful outside isn't it you want to go for a walk let's go for a walk you think you're helping gavin but you're not helping they just spared their soul they hold out their golden ball and that ball at that moment was sadness it's that great inside out movie that's exactly what i was thinking about yeah enjoy i i i was embarrassed when i saw that movie because i have oftentimes operated mostly as joy as amy poehler's character and i love that character i love her optimism and her and her can-do spirit and her let's do it let's rally that's that's good but this time has been devastating for me personally and admitting it and holding space for it and learning to hold space for myself is only going to hopefully, God, I hope, make me better to hold space for other people and to listen to them when they say I'm having a hard time. Again, it comes back to COVID. Like this, Our lives are never going to be the same. I hope how we relate to one another. I hope that justice is, is done and division expires. We're, we're, we're screwed if we don't find ways to find our common our commonality, our, our, our common humanity. And I don't think social media is the way to get there. I really don't. It, it definitely fuels people's um, ability to find the algorithm that agrees with them and then perpetuate their own emotional algorithm to a chorus of people who are also humming in the same algorithm. Yeah. You know, common humanity needs to be in our government. Common humanity needs to be a government that looks after all of its people, the poor and the disenfranchised and the minorities, possibly most of all, because the rest of us white privileged people 
don't have to work as hard as the poor and the disenfranchised and the people of color and the minority groups out there. Whew. Talk about tangents, man. We are flying all over the map, Daniel. No, I'm I'm actually really glad you brought that up because, I mean, the other half of right the pandemic is that in addition to this global catastrophe that we were dealing with nationally and it means something something that is it is global but unfortunately we as a country suffer with this most of all and i think it's absolutely right that we reckon with it we've had this really long needed awareness of racial policy and policing and this need for anti-racism and really becoming not just aware of it because people are aware of it and have been aware of it, but like actively fighting against it. I would love to know if you're willing to share, have there been things that you've been engaging with, whether it's posts that people have, although like we talked, like, or like you were talking about with social media, that can be really a dangerous rabbit hole, but whatever it is, are there types of content that you've been engaging with specifically around that topic that you found particularly useful and particularly helpful? I listened to this amazing podcast that I'm sure everybody has, 1619. It's a great series. That she needs to make more. She needs to more. I just, it was so good. I listened to Sherilyn Eiffel talk in the Black Theater United. And she said, white people, you need to know that you can stand next to us. You can stand behind us, but you do not stand in front of us. Like, I don't, you don't need to speak. And I, that really resonated with me of like, where can I support? Where can I listen? And where can I just be one of the crowd? I don't need to be, uh, I shouldn't be in front. I should be, I should be one of the, I should be marching with. You mentioned at the very beginning of this that you're working on a project with, with the Met now that it's reopening, which is incredibly exciting. Thank you. I would love to A, hear about that, but also going off of what you just said, are you now or do you think in the future you will be changing how you as a creator operate? Yes. It's hard because for me, I'm, I want to talk to my friends to ask what place, where am I needed? And what place is my writing needed and my performing needed? And, and where is it appropriate and where is it, where is it not? And I'm probably going to put my foot in it, you know, in an effort to try to be a part of the conversation and be like, no, it's not. That was not appropriate. That was technically racist. What you just did, and I'm like, ah, my intention was pure, but my impact was flawed. That's you know, really trying to examine that. But for example, I am going to be doing this concert at the Met. It is a story about a middle-aged gay white dude, in all intents and purposes, and his his observation of art, art that is largely viewed by affluent white people. An art, a museum that is supported by largely, and there and it has a troubled past. Huge collections of art that is there that we're celebrating. European collections, white collections, that were bought by money of slave owners, like companies that had slaves. It is a troubled, complicated past in our country. Do I think that we should erase all of the art that's in the Met or get rid of it because of its past? I do not. But I do think we have to out the sourcing and we have to tell the stories and we have to call out the complicated past of the Met. Am I the person to do that in this piece? I am not because I do not know enough about it. And that's not, that is not the focus of what I'm writing. But is, does that piece need to be written? Yeah, probably by, hopefully, BIPOC artists, like artists who are going to call out the hypocrisy of the history of the Met, which the Met fully knows about and is aware of and is working, I've witnessed it, is working to combat 
never fast enough, but they're working. And I'm inspired by what they're trying to do and who they're, but the truth is it is a centuries long problem that is rooted in violence and oppression and racism and all kinds of other isms that is what America is. Until we out ourselves to who we are and what we did and what we've done and not just hide behind them. Well, I didn't do that. My, my, my grandfather didn't do that. My great-grandfather didn't do that. At some point, we just got to take responsibility, and I don't know what that looks like. And I, I want to make sure that what I'm, what I'm saying is authentic yeah. and appropriate and, and that, my, that my voice as an artist, as a creator, as somebody who's writing and putting things into the world, that it is justified and effectively effective, you know? And, and, and authentic and honest and believable and vulnerable. And I'm not a history expert. I'm not a, an American history expert. I'm not, a, I'm not a current events expert. I'm not a political expert. The, most, the closest place to expertdom I have is story through song. I'm writing a concert call. And, you know, I'm not, that's what I call it. It's like I'm not really writing a musical. I'm writing a concert of music that is going to have a musical feel. It's going to have the flow of, you know, it's a lot of the stuff that we worked on. And then a bunch of new stuff. So, but I do believe, as artists, we have the power to 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 push the message out years before the public will be ready to actually change it. So we have to tell the stories. And my story, for me, is a story that I personally. This is totally off topic. This is not related at all. But my story that I'm excited to tell is a story of a middle-aged gay white dude who is struggling with his identity after certain amounts of success in a world and in a building where he doesn't feel like he belongs and shut up gay, white, middle-aged dude. Nobody really cares. And I'm like, I think maybe there's some universal feelings within what I'm feeling now that I hope will reach people at all age levels and all gender identity and sexualities and maybe different States, different races, different religions, beliefs. I'm hoping that I can find this is my the universality and the specificity of my of my life. I hope will reach people. But again, that's not why I'm writing it. I'm just trying to write. I'm trying to be honest with what I see and translate it in a way that feels authentic to me. And I do think that's all we can do as artists is try to speak as creators, especially, but as art, actors, messengers of other people's message, messengers. You know, is to try to interpret it or to communicate it in a way that feels as authentic to you as possible. I don't think I could say anything better than that. So, <laughs> I, I'd be lying if I said I would love for my concert to make it to Broadway for a limited run at the Circle in the Square. That's my dream. And then to get to tour it, and then go to London, and go to Australia, and tell the story about art, and my interpretation, and trying to find where I belong in the world. And that's what I want to talk about. But if... It goes no further than you sitting in, you know, a year on my couch here and I play through the 15 songs that I've written for this show and you just going, thank you. Then my job is done. And because I made something out of nothing, you sat, you bought the microphone, you set up the thing, you've asked your friends, you've asked me, your friend to talk. You created something that didn't exist before. If I am lucky enough to get to hear those songs, just us two sitting together that would be certainly that would make my day um but thank you again gavin it's really so good to see you my pleasure and i'm glad that you're doing well be well my friend i'll talk to you soon 
Thank you again to Gavin for taking the time to talk. As always, you can find Gavin's recommendations, so things like the 1619 Project, um, the website to Black Theatre United, and all of those sorts of things, as well as links to Gavin's personal work, uh, like his Spotify and his website. Those are all in the show notes. So you can find those either directly in the podcast app that you're probably using, or you can go to our website, which is uh, creativeconsumptionpodcast.com. And if you're interested, you could you can also find us on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Creative Consumption Podcast, so you can find us there. Um, stay tuned for some upcoming episodes. I've got a really fun one that, again, uh, I was very excited to do back in the fall, and I'm really uh, glad for you guys to get to hear it as well. So stay tuned for that. Uh, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and be well.